evening session uh, after a full day of um, settling into retreat, at least in this form, with this collection of Sangha siblings. Um, It's still, for many of us, a day of arriving, of settling, of um, kind of gentling ourselves into our seat, into presence, into um, our our, to the best that we can, our capacity to just attend to each moment. Sometimes I think the question that floats around for us, at least some of us, is what am I doing here on retreat, you know? (laughs) Or maybe it's more like, how did I get here? Um, And uh, many of us are fascinated by the Dharma, these vast, deep teachings that have such profound simplicity. There's a leaning and curiosity towards it. And then there's some of us that are just trying to get away from the life that we live. (laughs) We kind of want to exchange it for a different life. Or we want to be on some kind of improvement plan to kind of perfect something that we perceive as uh, imperfect. And um, then others of us come on retreat because the ways we've been working our lives are not working for us so well. We can't quite control all the elements and the people in our lives don't quite cooperate with, with what we have in mind. And then some people have the audacity to die. So we're living with loss and longing and... and um, a sense of lack we feel. So we arrive into this space with lots of different um, um, motivations and also um, various levels of weight on our hearts that we bring because we live in these bodies and um, we don't get to walk through our lives without being touched by it. And many of us are looking for ways to intimately explore and befriend the, the vastness of our lives, the complexity of our lives. And I've found the, the Dharma to be a really beautiful practice for supporting that kind of inquiry, release, and um, freedom. So I join you in this inquiry, I join you in, in this practice and all of its um, uh, beauty and frustration. So we have a, an opportunity this next several days to um, really slow down and experience more intimately what's happening while it's happening. And we can bring a kind of curiosity to the moment, a kind of kind curiosity to the moment that allows us to have more balance, to see more clearly, 
and to practice the teachings, not just know about them. So in this week, um, we get a chance to kind of quiet even more our impulses and recognize through more spacious awareness what's actually happening and the experience that we're having real time. I I find the retreat space to be a space where we can experience the teachings, not just hear them. So I'd like to begin this week these 10 days by talking about equanimity. Equanimity as a foundational support for exploration of insight. So equanimity is um, uh, reflected broadly the spirit of it anyway is, 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 is all over the, the, the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings. It's almost a quality of mind that represents a certain atmosphere that all of our investigation to some extent can, can, can be made. The Pali word for equanimity is upeka. And what it means, it means a lot of different things, but what it means in a general sense is to stand in the middle of all things. A common meaning in India is to see with patience. And it's the kind of seeing through the eyes of wisdom. So it's seeing through delusion, seeing through this, the, the way that the mind has actually, you know, concocted itself to, to our habits of mind that get in the way of us seeing clearly. Equanimity supports a cutting through and being and seeing with that. It's also a quality of seeing without being caught. And even if you are caught in the scene, there's, there, there can be a recognition of that and softening around it. Sometimes I like to talk about it as seeing with perspective, seeing, um, seeing uh, in a spacious way, kind of a panoramic view. There's, uh, in a spiritual tradition I um, studied in, in West Africa, the Yoruba tradition, uh, there's Orishas who are deities that represent different um, qualities that support well-being. And one of the Orishas is Obatala. And Obatala is, is referred to as a sky father, one that sits high and sees all and holds it in balance, and then responds from a place of wisdom because of that vast view. So equanimity uh, practice supports uh, an evenness of mind, a sense of non-reactivity, a stability, a poise, 
and it supports the continuity of mindfulness that we'll be practicing most of the week. Equanimity is a now experience. It's not like a destination that we reach and we're there forever. It's, it's, a, it's a moment that has um, what I believe has been my experience, that it has cumulative impact. That when we taste these moments of equanimity, they're so potent, so homeopathic, that they have this, this kind of permeating uh, impact. We're, we're never quite able to go right back to our same sense of um, tightness. has that quality to it. It's also referred to as seen with quiet eyes. We can just imagine and feel what that brings up in our mind to see with quiet eyes. The Buddha describes a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So this equanimity is a mind state that is the basis of many spiritual inclinations or aspirations. And we can usually see it in the iconology of a lot of spiritual teachings. We can see it in the, the statues of the Buddha and Kuan Yin. This sense of um, uh, serenity, ease, peacefulness, a still nobility. And the greater discourse, discourses of advice to Rahula, who is the son of the Buddha, it kind of describes the Buddha trying to explain to his son Raula what equanimity is. And I'm going to paraphrase it as if I was talking to my grand, grandson, you know. But Raula is saying, like, what is equanimity, Dad? You know? And the Buddha, this is like a rap song, the Buddha says, well... <laughs> Equanimity is like a mountain of stillness and grace and nobility. It's solid, undisturbed by the seasons. And then Raul says, but dad, what is equanimity? And the Buddha says, well, it's like an ocean. It can swallow all things without being destroyed or disturbed. And Raula says, but dad, what is equanimity? And the Buddha says, it's like a strong fire. It can engulf whatever's thrown into it without being disturbed. It actually dances with it. The fire can dance with whatever comes in its way. And Raula says, but dad, what is equanimity? The Buddha says, well, it's like space. All things can be seen within it. And it doesn't resist anything that moves within it. So we get a sense here in this teaching of the the Buddha speaking elementally about 
the quality of an equanimous mind state. So it, in my mind, it feels like a perspective teaching, a mind state where whatever arises is small and incidental compared to the vastness of the capacity of what the mind can hold and be present with. When I look over my life, I realize that the equanimity is not unfamiliar. um, I'm reminded of the statement President Nelson Mandela um, said when he said, when we can sit in the fire of insanity and dislike and be free from the need to make it different, then we are free. And I can remember growing up in the civil rights movement, there was an African-American spiritual and civil rights protest song that um, was sang while all of the protesters were held, held, their arms were clasped together and they were sitting steadfast. And some of you might know that song. It goes like, I shall not... I shall not be moved, I shall not, I shall not be moved just like a tree planted by the waters, I shall not be moved. It was a sense of equanimity, a sense of taking a seat and wisdom, not so much will. It's not a brute quality, because obviously many of them were moved and put in jail. But it's that sense, that sense of, of, it's like the Buddha touching the earth, saying, I'm not moving from here until I understand what suffering's about. So equanimity is prominent throughout the discourses and it's, it's referred to as like a crown jewel of practice in Buddhism. <coughs> and equanimity is a term that usually shows up at the end of lists. So it's on many lists and it's usually towards the end because it represents a certain crowning or spiritual um, um, ripening. And it's noticeable throughout the Eightfold Path, so I'd like to speak to it in that way. So when we look at wise view, this is a view that helps us realize from the inside out that there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And when the teaching, in the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, and suffering is to be understood. The cause of suffering is clinging, which is to be abandoned. The end of suffering, the cessation of suffering, is to be released, 
And the fourth noble truth, the path, is there's a way that we, there's a, there's a practice that we can cultivate that supports this release. And equanimity is characterized in that third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. And it's the experience of both knowing the suffering and its release in our practice. It's also in this first uh, of the paths, wise view, an understanding of the three characteristics of our existence, the idea that um, there is suffering in the world, um, there is, um, uh, all things are impermanent, and um, that the more we identify with a self, the more suffering we experience. So the sense of non-self is a part of those three characteristics. Or the more shorthand version that I use is nothing in life is personal, permanent, or perfect. But it's also a way of saying that no moment can be lived twice. This kind of wisdom is what supports equanimity. That no moment can really be lived twice. And it's really having this understanding with suffering, um, it's kind of like a, a, a befriending it in a way that supports a certain ease of mind. And I like what James Baldwin has to say about this. He says that people who cannot suffer, cannot grow up, can never discover who they are. So it's that kind of understanding that the suffering that we experience is not um, meant to, um, is meant to teach us how to be more alive. And equanimity is also kind of reflected in wise effort. The balance, uh, and it's a balance and mental discipline, this practice of, of wise effort. We can consider this practice of um, wise effort as a, um, when we think about the uh, the eighth worldly the eight worldly winds. There's pleasure and pain. There's gain and loss. There's praise and blame. There's fame and shame. And equanimity holds these extremes in balance. And I like to, I, I've noticed a certain subtlety in my own practice that it's not like um, equanimity's in the middle and the seesaw is going like this. It's, it's the experience of, of being um, equanimous with these extremes of deprivation and um, indulgence. It's actually an experience of being with and intimate with the experience as it's happening. I like what Joseph said this morning about not observing what's happening, this idea of observing, but more being with what's happening. So we can be with these extremes 
with a sense of stability and poise. Again, it's a sense of being centered in wisdom, not will, so we're not efforting our way into knowing. And sometimes we can feel this in the posture and the way that we're sitting. Sometimes we can feel ourselves leaning forward. Even if we're thinking and our eyes are closed, we might notice a slight tilt towards or a slight tilt backwards. We can uh, bring ourselves into more centeredness as a subtle way of um, being with wise effort. I've been working with a very skilled physical therapist recently for my lower back and left hip. And I didn't realize I was out of alignment because I just thought I needed, you know, a little something, something. I didn't know I'd be seeing her for several months. (laughs) But one of the things she said was, there is a front to your back. And I thought that was very interesting and thinking about equanimity. I was so focused on where the pain was located that I wasn't looking at the balance, the imbalance that I was experiencing that was contributing to it. So a lot of the work she did was on the front of my body, not the back. So this is how I see this as a perspective teaching that sometimes we have to um, re-examine the familiar, bring new resources to our habits of mind, our habits of thinking. So I see this practice as cultivating an inner strength that keeps us upright and balanced with a strong core. And that's the dignity I see represented when I look out at you and also when I look at these different images of the Buddha. There's a teaching in the Dharmapada, which is a collection of the sayings of the Buddha in verse form. And it goes like this, as solid as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle little pressures and desires. Touched by happiness and then by suffering, the sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. When we over-effort or we're out of balance, we're out of presence. And um, sometimes what we can find is that we're clinging to presence as a way of trying to freeze a moment in time. I remember having a dream I was in South Africa at the time, and I woke up 
in a cold sweat because I was watching something so exquisite, so exquisite that I was running on melting ice to get my camera so I could capture it. And with each step, the ice was melting. So there was no way I could get back to the scene. But I was trying to, you know, capture, you know, how do I get it, right? And we can see this when we go to concerts and everybody has their cell phone, you know, recording the moment. Maybe they're experiencing it too, but we could probably experience it more without that distraction. So we incline the mind towards balance because it supports inquiry. It supports mindfulness. And this week we're going to be given a number of tools to really examine how our mind is. The practice um, of wise effort and equanimity can be simple in a way. You can work with this this evening. The idea at times is to to know the energetic mind and rest with it. So it's a bit of dropping the story and being with the energy of the mind more intimately and seeing if there can be a resting there. We might say things like in this moment, this moment is like this and it doesn't have to be different. Or I can be with this right here and now. Or in this moment I'm safe. It's helpful to notice if the effort you're making is agitating or settling the heart-mind. Let's see if that effort, if there's an over-efforting, there can be agitation. And allowing what is arising to be known and moved through the mind without interference, without resistance without war. I like the way Toni Morrison says it. She says, at some point in life the world's beauty becomes enough. You don't need to photograph, paint, or even remember it. It's enough. No record of it needs to be kept and you don't need someone to share it with or tell it to. When that happens, that letting go, you let go because you can. So balanced effort supports a continuity of awareness in all of our activities with stability, and balance of mind.
Equanimity is also reflected in wise concentration. And, and concentration practice is a way of cultivating equanimity. One of the more common ways can go on retreat and work with, with um, concentration practice or samadhi. Concentration practice supports us in collecting and unifying the kind of fragmented mind that we can carry around. It supports us in prolonging simplicity and presence. And it supports us in just being with, with, with what's happening right now. And there's five factors that are, um, five jhana factors or absorption factors that are spoken to in concentration practice that we begin to notice as we get stiller and stiller, as the hindrances in the mind, the agitations in the mind begin to soften, we begin to open to some of these factors which are pointing towards more equanimity and insight. There's a wholehearted aiming of our attention, which is the first factor, which is vitaka. And what that does is it calms our desire. And then there's vichara, which is sustaining attention over a period of time. And this supports ease and stability. And these two factors are associated with wise effort. And then the third jhana factor is joy, or the Pali word is pity, aliveness, awakening of interest. It supports a heart expanse and circulation and a sense of upliftedness. Too much pity can be agitation or, or can create anxiety, and too little can support a sense of indifference or boredom. The fourth factor is sukha or bliss, a certain sweetness, happiness, cooling that we can experience in our stillness. And the fifth factor is one-pointedness, or ekagata, to rest in stillness, stability, and steadiness of mind. This supports simplicity. And equanimity is most referenced or referred, or can be, is experienced in the fourth jhana, which is sukha, or bliss can begin to feel that sense of contentment and ease. And when these five factors kind of come into alignment, um, we experience more equanimity. And it also, that sense of stillness supports us into deeper concentration. Mindfulness is indeed a practice that supports equanimity as well. And when the mind gets more stable, when the hindrances can, can be um, 
quieted, then we begin to, to feel more of these states of ease. But the hindrances are no joke, you know, they really occupy a big part of our lives, you know. These hindrances of greed and the mind and desire and aversion, things we don't like, and restlessness and sloth and torpor and doubt, worry. You know, the hindrances are part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And um, there's all kinds of things we can begin to pay attention to in our practice. And papancha, which is a term that really speaks to a sense of proliferation, is one of the ways we morph ourselves or morphing happens and takes us away from a sense of stability or ease. There's various, sometimes one way that I look at papancha in the mind is sometimes I associate it with a, with a mannequin. A mannequin starts with nothing on its body, right? And then we add different layers, scarves, sweaters, pants, shoes, before we know it. We've got a whole outfit going on in the mind that started with the mannequin, you know? Or we can think in terms of going to the, uh, getting the cotton candy and it starts with just a simple cone, but by the time it runs itself around all that pink, stinky, sticky stuff, you have quite a mess in the mind. And it doesn't even taste that great, but we eat it anyway. (laughs) So there's all kinds of um, uh, mental activity and mindfulness. There's two common um, human responses to that kind of chaos in the mind. We will usually name it and point it out, or we respond to it with some sense of aggression or violence. And there's a third thing that we could do, which is what we're here practicing more, and that is to become more intimate with the chaos itself to open our hearts to it, open wide to being curious about it's what it's about. We can sit with it, we can hold it. In wise mindfulness, there in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, there's the seven factors of awakening. And this is another way that we're looking at a sense of balance and ease. There's mindfulness, and there is um, energizing factors of investigation, energy, and joy. And then there's calming factors, which are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And mindfulness itself is what supports us being able to see the dance of these, these energetic of mind. So again, we want to incline towards balance. And perhaps a simple way to begin to incline towards this sense of ease is developing a relationship with calm. 
like, what is your relationship with calm? Some of us have an allergic reaction to being at ease. We have an addiction to intensity. You know, we're kind of primed that way. And if that kind of edge is not happening, it, it can be scary for us. This never happens to me, by the way, but it can probably be scary for people. So we might reflect throughout the next few days, what are the times of day when you're most likely to be calm? How much importance do you you give to calmness? What supports you to be calm? And what are the most common conditions that cause you to lose your calmness? It's not about going to work on this, but opening the awareness to, to just notice what comes up when there is a sense of ease that you're experiencing. The Brahma Viharas, which are the teachings um, on the four divine abodes, or what Daisy Hernandez refers to as the four divine casitas. Um, These four boundless qualities of heart that are taught by the Buddha. Equanimity is the underpinning of the other three, which is kindness, empathetic joy, and compassion. Equanimity is kind of like the underpinning of the others. And we'll be receiving different heart practices this week. But in the equanimity teachings, there's the the assumption that the, the, the equanimity teachings are meant to remind us of the truth of how things are. So there's phrases that are offered in equanimity practice like, I care for you, but I cannot make your choices for you. Your happiness and unhappiness depends on your actions, not so much on my wishes for you. These are statements that are assuming that you understand this sense of wisdom, not will, and it's inviting uh, a sense of um, poise and balance with how life is. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. The statements go on and on. I care for you, but I cannot control your happiness or your unhappiness. The idea uh, is to see the world with quiet eyes. Being right in the center and the seat of what's happening right here and now. What's happening as it's happening. 
I read, I found this writing. I'm not sure where the source was. I've been trying to locate it. But I think it really speaks beautifully to, to equanimity. And it says, it is not our work to force someone's growth to our liking. It is the work of love to admire the beauty before you, to give people a sense of safety to unfold, to keep each other company when drowning in anguish until the wave can balance out and our feelings can once again live in us. This speaks to the Brahma-vihara of equanimity, this sense of being with what's here in a loving, receptive way. Part of that loving and accepting Love of an acceptance has to do with our heart's capacity to forgive at any given time. Or our ability to examine what gets in the way of the tightening that um, holds us back from forgiving. That release that the heart is longing for and yet it's so difficult to kind of let that happen. When we're in practice sometimes, these areas come up for us. We begin to see some of the, we we see the stories and the experiences and um, when we start to soften, the memories of why we've held on so tightly come up in our practice. And the invitation is to sit with that, to be with that, to be friends with that. So forgiveness is another way that we support a sense of equanimity. And it can be a very um, um, piercing release for us. Um, um, a point of pure clarity that can happen for us when we forgive. And we can forgive without it being necessarily relational, where somebody, we're talking to someone or we're working it out with someone. My oldest sister passed away, it was in 2017, and I was actually here teaching the March retreat. She didn't pass away on that retreat, but it was during that time that I was trying to connect with her because we had been estranged for a couple of decades, so long that I couldn't even remember what happened. And I had kept asking her what happened, but she wasn't willing to engage. And she, she came down with pancreatic cancer. And so I was doing quite a bit of reaching out to her to see if we could connect before this passing. And, and it didn't happen. But at the retreat, I, I wrote this um, note to her. And I'd been calling her and leaving email messages. And I wrote this note to her asking for 
her forgiveness. And it went something like this. Hello, it's me again. I know this is a difficult time for you. I'm imagining that you're both strong and afraid and that you are reflecting on your life, hopefully in kind ways. I want you to know that I love you and I have a request. I want you to forgive me. I'm not sure what I did for you to shut me out of your life, but it must have been hurtful and necessary. And I'm deeply sorry. My prayer is that we somehow rise above it. I'd like for us to bury this legacy that we inherited from mom of never forgiving. It's a weight that I'm sure your heart can do without right now. You don't have to call me back. I'll know if you forgive me. I want you to know that I'm deeply sorry for hurting you. I love you, I wish to be near you. And she died a couple of weeks later. She didn't call me back. But you know, we, we move through this life and we don't get to not be touched by it. And then we're challenged with how we sit with, with, with the rawness the harsh reality of of what comes at us. And this practice has been so soothing and supporting that kind of clearing, the release that happened for me and the clearing was was what was profound. Because the, the real healing wasn't so much with that relationship, but it was when I went home and um, was able to be with her children and their children. So this idea of, of staying with a sense of stability and clear seeing has impact that's beyond the immediate concern we might be challenged with. And we just don't get to know how our heart is impacting life itself. Not just our life, but life itself. I was on a trip in um, India and uh, the connecting flight got stuck in, at a hotel and uh, we ended up in a hotel in Chochen, near Chochen International Airport and it looked like an abandoned hotel. And uh, the flight connection was at like 4.30 in the morning and um, so we had to meet in the lobby around two in order to get to, to the airport. It's a group of about eight of us. And me and another friend, who are always on time, got to the lobby on time. Nobody else was there. And all of a sudden, we see this swarm of robes moving through the lobby. And in the center of, of all these robes, was the Dalai Lama. And the, the movement was very swift. 
But even in the swiftness, he took a moment and looked both my friend and I in the eyes. And his, his practice, his life, uh, was so potent that we found our, my friend and I found ourselves on our knees and crying for the next several days. And I understand that to be referenced as a glance of mercy, this sense of, uh, of potency that can happen when our presence and our heart and our mind is lined and just steeped in wisdom and care. And these are the moments, you know, however small or large, that can just really carry us and give us tremendous faith in our practice and in these teachings. I wasn't even involved in Buddhism at the time, but I had a feeling of what that was. And it sure felt like a, I just wanted some more of that. I didn't know what it was. And another of the path that I think really speaks to equanimity has to do with wise action our conduct in the world. Again, we don't get to move through the world without being touched by it, but also responsible for it. This kind of sense of responsibility that we have. There's a different set of worldly winds that I speak to when I look at this issue of kind of social equanimity like the winds of corruption and innocence and purity and savagery and wisdom and irrationality and benevolence and wickedness and threats of outsiders and who we consider neighbors. Distance and intimacy, receptivity and force. Navigating those winds becomes a real challenge for and what our practice is made for. The Buddha talks about us not doing this practice for ourselves, but in service to the larger Sangha, in my mind, the Sangha of community. Our practice is uh, needed in the world. So we can't do what must be done if we're in a perpetual state of overwhelm, whether it's in the world or it's here on our cushion. So our practice is really looking how we manage and be with, be lovingly present with our mind in a stable, steady, easeful way. So I'd invite you to consider throughout this week, um, you know, is it possible to, to be with the activity of mind without war, without resistance? With a sense of welcome with what's arising and a sense of care a sense of um, being with instead of resisting. 
the activity of mind is so impersonal. It just doesn't really care that much about what you think. So, <laughs> you know, when we kind of latch on to what's arising, it really, we can feel the, the um, contraction that comes with that. And we can soften. We, it's a practice, it's not a judgment. We're practicing how to deconstruct habits of mind that contribute to our suffering. That's what we're doing with our time here. And there will be many ways that we get a chance to be with it, to hold it, to see differently, to care. So again, we need some level of equanimity to refine insight, to be able to investigate. We need this sense, some sense of equanimity to do that. What I've found is that with practice, we, we fine-tune our inner strings for balance, for clarity, and for wise action in our lives and in our own minds. We discover through these practices that we can carry our own weight without tilting or falling over. that we're not rocked off and knocked off our seat so easily. And even if we are, we can easily and easefully get back up again. And that we're able to live our practice more ethically and honestly with others. The Indian philosopher Krishnamurti says, when the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answers or solutions, neither resisting or avoiding, it is only then that we can be, that there can be a regeneration because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And is, it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. So let's just sit together for a minute.
I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the waters, I shall not be moved. Thank you for your attention, for your practice, and we'll take a half an hour for walking meditation.